Here's a simple counseling tip. Our behaviors reveal our hearts. You know that. Did you know if you get a discerning handle on a person's actions, you will find clues like breadcrumbs that lead you down to their heart? Out of our heart come, well, everything. Everything that we say, everything that we do comes from our hearts. Our heart is the the core center of our being and all of our actions and words and attitudes flow from it. And so not only do our behaviors reveal our hearts, but if you do, if you are able to discern what is going on in a person's heart, you will be able to help them. In fact, this kind of careful consideration of others will position you to be a more effective Jesus to them. This is a theology of sanctification that I am talking about, and this theology of sanctification, discerning the heart as you observe the behaviors, it really does apply to couples who interrelate with each other, and that's what I want to talk about in this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I am Rick Thomas, and you're listening to Your Daily Drive. The title of this podcast is Mind Mapping a Marriage from Bad to good. You want to hear a good uh, story, a marriage that becomes reconciled? Well, I want to share that with you, but I also want to share with you the practical steps to get there as the title of the podcast and the article on our website implies mind mapping a marriage from good to bad. So there is a mind map here I have sketched this out in a mind map, and so if you go to the article, you can look at this visual aid, and it will help you uh, to further flesh out what I'm talking about. Now, if your marriage is in trouble, well, this will be really good for you. If you are helping someone, a couple, a couple that is in trouble, then this will help you to guide them, and I would recommend that you share this with them. Share this podcast that you're listening to right now. Share the article. It's over 2,000 words that you can give them as an excellent homework assignment. So they have the audio. They have the written text. Then they would have this mind map. Now, if they are humble and they're wanting to work on their relationship, well, you have an excellent resource here. And then I have three other articles on communication. These three articles make up They comprise my little communication booklet, and you can have all three of those here. That's about 7,000 words, I suppose, on communication, and so this would really be supplemental to a marriage in trouble as they read this article, listen to the article, the podcast, look at the mind map, and then read all this content on communication Great homework assignment, so use it. Now, if it is you, then you use this on yourself. Now, if you have questions, well, you can do that too. We have an interactive forum. We're not the kind of ministry that just floats stuff out in cyberspace unattended or unconnected. We want it to be connected to us. And so you can come back to us after you uh, partake of these resources, and you can ask us specific questions because no article, no podcast will perfectly map over whatever it is that you are going through. 
And so you want unique help. And so you can take this and find tremendous help from it, but then you can also come to our ministry and jump on our community forums and ask your questions. It won't cost you a dime, just a little bit of time. Our ministry is underwritten by folks who support. Now, if you want to support us, you're welcome to do that. And there's links here that will show you how to do that. But let's get into it. Mind mapping, a marriage from bad to good. Now, there are certain behaviors that will tell you if a marriage is is really a good marriage. Things that you can observe as you watch two couples interact with each other. I want to share three of those things with you, and this would be a good time for you to assess the state of your marriage. Now, there are many things that you can look for to see if the marriage is doing well. This is just three. Here they are. Laughability. Two, tender care. Number three, one flesh body language. All three of these represent clues to the state of a person's marriage. Let me talk about those, explain what I mean by laughability, tender care, one flesh body language, laughability. There is a contented joy. You can put that in quotation marks. There is a contented joy between two people who are reconciled, meaning there is no unresolved sin dividing them. It doesn't mean they don't sin. Of course they do, but they have a sin plan. They have a plan that they activate every time that they sin. Therefore, they live in a perpetual reconciled state, and every time sin tries to divide them, they are quick repenters. And because of that, they have contented joy. They can laugh in conjugal joy because there is no masked tension in their relationship. They enjoy unguarded connectivity. Do you have masked tension in your relationship? You just can't giggle, be giddy, a little bit silly. I'm talking about laughability because of a deep, abiding, contented joy that is between two people who are reconciled. Number two is tender care. Tender care is the way that they look at each other, the way that they touch each other. It reveals a physical fondness within the marriage covenant. There is a natural attraction like magnets to be physical in simple ways. I'm talking about hand-holding, touching, rubbing, caressing, just being near each other, being up in each other's bubble. You're in the kitchen and you just want to hug each other. It's a willing vulnerability and it releases them to be free with each other. That's my description of tender care. Again, these are some of the behaviors that you can observe in a marriage that's going well. Laughability, tender care. And then the third one in my non-exhaustive list is one flesh body language. They honor each other by active eye contact. And their active eye contact reveals a respect. You can see it. You can see when the husband looks at the wife that he respects her. And you can see it in her eyes that she respects him, that they have genuine affection for each other. There is a physical comfortableness as opposed to having to be tight or 
with drone or tents when around each other. And you do see that with two people, a married couple, that when they are around each other, you don't see this one flesh body language. They know each other, talk to each other. They're not necessarily sinful to each other, but there's a lack of symbiosis between them. Now, these are just some of the things you can perceive from couples in love. There is an authentic like, I put that in quotation marks, an authentic like for the other person that they cannot disguise. It just comes out. It emanates from them. When they get around each other, there is this loving glow. They just enjoy being with each other. Now, it is a beautiful thing to see this type of symbiotic interaction between a husband and a wife. When these kinds of relational benefits are not present, there will be a distance in their union. I mean, even if they are together, you can sense the distance. Relational laughter, tender affection, and a divided one flesh, it will be discernible. Now, I have here a mind map that if you do have time, get on the website, look for this article, Mind Mapping a Marriage from Bad to Good, where I lay out the problem. I'm going to give you a fictional scenario, a fictional couple. And if you want to get a little deeper in this, you can use this mind map as a diagnostic tool to either help your own marriage or to help another individual. But this is fictional. But the process that I'm going to share with you is similar to many couples who have allowed the divisiveness of sin to interrupt what the Lord freely offers to two people who want it. And it always begins with a desire. Separation in a marriage always begins with an unmet desire. Now, when I say unmet desire, I am not necessarily saying a sinful desire. All desires aren't sinful. Some of them can be good, and so I am not attributing sin to the desire. I'm just saying it's an unmet desire, an unfulfilled desire. A spouse wants something. Very common. Happens every day between two people. And typically, it is a desire that runs along the lines of respect. I desire for you to respect me. Honor, that's a good desire. Love, excellent desire. Appreciation, another desire. Time, will you spend time with me? A good desire. Proactivity, will you do something? Will you show initiative? Will you not be passive? And then here's another one acceptance. Do you accept me? All of these desires are good. Respect, honor, love, appreciation, time, proactivity, acceptance. None of them have to be necessarily wrong. In a perfect world, you will find all of them in our relational benefit package because every one of them is good. There is nothing from the list that I've shared with you that will not be in heaven. There'll be respect and honor and appreciation. Well, time. Well, time in the sense that we'll spend time with each other. Of course, we know there'll be no time in heaven, but we will be with each other. Proactivity and acceptance. Now, the problem for us is we're not in heaven. 
And so this reality of our fallenness that we're not in heaven, what that means is we must hold these good desires loosely. It does not imply that we should, that we should let go of them. Again, I'm not saying that. But we must give careful attention to how they can become contorted and controlling in our lives. In a world where sin abounds, any good thing like these desires that I have mentioned is just a hair's breadth from becoming a bad thing. The enemy is always on the prowl seeking how to devour all the good the Lord intends. And so the way that a marriage goes bad begins very simply, and you could say innocuously, with a desire, a good desire to be specific. And then what happens is once you have this desire, you have an expectation that someone, your spouse, is going to fulfill this desire. And so our desires will become controlling if we don't steward them correctly. Now, typically, we only steward our hopes in a one-sided fashion. We only steward our desires in a one-sided fashion, meaning we, we give thought to the possibility of getting our desires met. That's usually how it goes. We have a desire, and well, we only think about it from one side, one option. There's only one option. I, I'm going to have this desire met by my spouse. We tend to resist the potential of the Lord withholding what we want. I mean, could it be that God is in this interrupting our desires? It's a myopic understanding of God's plans for us if we don't consider, if we don't factor in the Lord interrupting our desires. Because the truth is, we are not going to get all that we want, all that we desire. And if we do not press this, this inevitableness of the Lord not giving us what we want into the possible equation for the betterment of our relationships, yes, it is true that God can withhold certain desires, good desires that we want for the betterment of our relationship. And if we do not guard this possibility will be set up for disappointment. Now, this problem that I'm talking about here, having a good desire and an expectation for it and not getting it, it can really be more sinister than, than what you may think. Because typically we do not factor the Lord's permission of adverse outcomes. Because the truth is, we want what we want more than what he may be writing into our stories. How many times in your life when you desired something that was good and God did not permit it because he was writing something better into your story? Now, this kind of wrong thinking, the wrong thinking is that I'm always going to get my desires, it minimizes the Lord while elevating self-expected entitlements. And so the division in a marriage comes when there is a good desire and then there's an expectation for it. We don't get it. And then the third thing that happens is disappointment. Desire, expectation, and inevitable, inevitable disappointment. Without the careful stewardship of unmet desires, we're not far from being disappointed with the people we expected to give us what we hoped for in the relationship. Now, let me reiterate that these things do not have to be bad things. 
They only become bad when our hearts turn angry as a response to not getting what we wanted. You can know when a desire is a bad desire, even though it started out good. It becomes a bad desire when you become sinfully angry when you don't get it. Too many people get lost at this point. What they want becomes so controlling and so expected that they cannot conceive of a scenario where not getting these things could possibly be right. And without a sound gospel orientation of the mind, they will never see the lifting of their relational fog or their relational dysfunction. There are scores of situations in the Bible where the Lord was, listen to this, actively causing bad things to happen because he could see the bigger picture. He was working his plan of redemption in the lives of many people, and that's always the rub. The selfish person can only think of themselves, but God can allow adverse things into our lives because of the bigger picture. Just just read Hebrews 11. Mark this in your mind. I'm not going to share it with you at this point, but just mark this in your mind. Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 34. And you'll see so many people who did not get what they wanted. And so the division and dysfunction comes in a marriage when we have a desire. I want something. And then we have an expectation because of that desire. And then we are disappointed, point number three, because we don't get it. And then number four, right on the heels of disappointment is anger. When anger over not getting what you want enters into the relationship, there will be division. There's no other option. Sinful anger, regardless of how it manifests, will always disrupt relational shalom, relational peace. Now, the oddity about anger is how it, how it can become a fixture in a person's heart years before the other spouse is aware of the problem. When I ask a struggling couple about the beginning of their problems, the genesis, they typically give two radically different starting times for when their problems began. For example, the wife will talk about the onset of disappointment early in the marriage. She's more in tune to all of these things, typically. And when you talk to her about, well, why are you where you are right now? Typically, she will talk about the onset of disappointment early in the marriage, if not before they were married. The husband will say, well, you know, I noticed things going south about the 10-year mark of our marriage, of a 20-year marriage. The early stages of anger look more like disappointment, discouragement, frustration, impatience, negativity, dismissiveness, All of these things could be in play years before maybe the other spouse perceives that, oh, maybe my spouse is angry, and they never saw it, even though it's been in play for over 10 years. Because these subtle forms of anger, disappointment, discouragement, frustration, impatience, negativity, and dismissiveness, they're hard to perceive. But these are marriage killers. And if you miss these things or marginalize these realities, well, the couple will not be intentional about their sanctification. And if you're not intentional about your sanctification, 
as an individual and as a couple, your marriage will divide. And so what we have here is an unmet desire. Number two, an expectation. Number three, disappointment. Number four, now I'm angry in whatever low level or volatile level it may be. And then number five, well, there can only be at this point unforgiveness. Regardless of the type of anger, if they do not deal with it biblically, the couple will mishandle this pivotal point in their union. Forgiveness and unforgiveness, this is a watershed moment that will send their marriage in one of two radically different directions. If they pursue forgiveness, the direction that they will go will be toward unity and reconciliation and restoration and wholeness and completeness and maturity and so forth and so on. But if they do not deal with this anger, there will be unforgiveness and it will divide them. You have to remember that sin typically slithers into the union unbeknownst to one of the partners at least. The chance of reconciliation in this case is slim. The hurt spouse will begin harboring resentment because of the unmet desire while accumulating Many more grievances. Once an unmet desire captures a foothold in the marriage, in the person's heart, there will be an accumulative effect. You better believe that there will be more things that will attach themselves to this single thing of an unmet desire. There's a self-defeating interplay here. One spouse is hurt. The other spouse is oblivious. Maybe the hurt spouse tried to speak up, but it fell on deaf ears. There are several ineffective ways this can play out, but the result is always the same for this kind of couple. Unforgiveness is a cancer that will overcome any marriage, and at that point, nothing can be done until the accumulative effect of the ongoing hurt brings both spouses to the place of taking action. And so we have a desire that is unmet. There is an elevated expectation that it will be met. There is disappointment in the couple's life. One of the spouses becomes angry. Then unforgiveness begins to settle in. And then if the unforgiveness continues, guess what? Bitterness will be knocking on that spouse's door. If the sad storyline continues, it will always turn to bitterness. And what bitterness is, is unrepented, undealt with anger that has gone from bad to worse. The bad part is anger. The worst part is bitterness. That's what bad to worse means. It starts out as anger, but because it's not repented of or it's undealt with, Anger gone bad becomes bitterness. Now the spouse is bitter, and bitterness is a self-justified anger that is rooted deep in the heart. There is nothing the other spouse can do at this point because, well, whatever they try to do with an unforgiving, hard-hearted, bitter spouse, it, it won't go well for them because the other person's like a person sitting in the bush with a rifle cocked, loaded, waiting for his prey. The spouse is angry and bitter and cynical and has been that way for a while, even though the other spouse has been oblivious. And this spouse has been holding the ultimate trump card, which is self-righteous unforgiveness. 
because you did not meet my desire. This juncture is the point where the guy gets a clue. Of course, the way he typically responds is with the disrespect card. What I mean is, once he gets a clue and realizes how angry his wife is, then he starts disrespecting her. And what this scenario forms is a standoff. She's bitter and angry, and she says some uncharitable, unkind things to him. And now he, instead of responding humbly and maturely, he is he's disrespecting her. And so what we have now is two selfish and angry people playing chicken in the middle of the road waiting for the other person to make the first move. You see, they both own the rights to an entitled desire. I believe you should, I'm entitled to you meeting the desire that I had originally. And he is saying that I'm entitled that you not disrespect me. And neither one of them will let go of their rightness. This is a conundrum. The thing is, is that they're both right. The husband should have met that good desire that the wife had, but he didn't, and it has gone into bitterness and unforgiveness. And the wife should respect her husband, but she won't. And so both of them are right, and both of them are wrong. Now, guess where they both land on this, this I am right and you are wrong tension? Well, you know where they're going to land on it. When selfish people can find leverage in the marriage, they will take it, not let up on it, no matter how much you talk about the other-centered call that the Lord places on our lives. And quite honestly, until the Lord intervenes and his fame matters more than their perceived entitlements, they will never relinquish the stranglehold they have on each other. They will die fighting for their rights before they will die to themselves. Now, at this point, there is discernible, objective distance in the union. That's how they got here. They both know it, and anyone who spends any amount of time with this couple knows it. Creating separation is the final step in the process of a marriage breaking down. And it's at this juncture when, hopefully, they will come to counseling Many marriage partners choose rather to muddle along, assuming the roles of roommates or business partners staying together for any number of of self-serving reasons. And so what I want to do if this couple came to me, I want to give them a three-step action plan of how they can work through these problems that they have created. Step number one, they have to own what is wrong with them and what is wrong with the marriage. This action, step number one, it is the ownership point of the relationship or of the counseling. And what it means is they must be actively confessing their sins to each other and God. They must do this if they want to move forward in their marriage. No reconciliation can happen. No reconciliation can happen until they neutralize all the sin that is between them. The only way they can counteract their sinfulness is to own what is wrong, which means confession and mutual forgiveness. And if they do this, they can go to step number two. So step number one is ownership. Ownership implies all that I have said, that they own it, they confess it, there's mutual forgiveness, that they're willing to move toward each other. Step number two is obvious, reconciliation. They can begin coming together. 
They can begin to forgive each other. I will forgive you, or will you forgive me? Both of those things need to happen. And if it does, the bitterness will begin to vaporize, and the disrespect that they had for each other will begin to magically go away. The owning of sin and the neutralizing of sin, it positions the couple to do what they could never do before, which is talk about what is wrong. You see, they couldn't talk about their problems before because there was no authentic, genuine, Christ-exalting, grace-empowered, devil-robbing confession and forgiveness. And if the forgiveness is real, they can get to work with what has gone wrong in the marriage. And then they can move on to step number three. Step number three, the Christian life is repentance and ongoing repenting. Sin and repentance are never one and done. There will always be more of the former sin, which necessitates the latter repentance. As they continue to walk out repentance with the Lord and with each other, they will be positioned to begin to take the sting out of their anger and the disappointment and their expectations, and they'll become normal Christians, realizing their strengths and weaknesses and and building a relationship with each other. Now, there's so much more to say here, and I actually have more in the article. If you want to read the full transcript, you're welcome to do that. The title of it is Mind Mapping, A Marriage from Good to Bad. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.